So here we are at the end of the book of Ruth. I hope you all have enjoyed it. I know I have our gospel group that meets on Fridays. We've been reviewing the book as well. And I go, man, this has been a great, a great series, a great chance to dive into this stuff. And so I probably should thank Brad. I don't know if Brad is in here. Brad's the one who said, let's do this. It's probably weird for him, right, to say, hey, let's do a teaching series when he knows that I'm the one who's going to have to teach all of it. So I'm just waiting for him to say, let's do Song of Songs. (laughs) Good luck, Greg. (laughs) But thank you. No, this is a good one. Uh, It's been fun. I love that sort of that dynamic. But anyway, we're here at the fourth chapter. We're at the end. We're at the conclusion of the story of Ruth. And again, as we read this, we're going to read it together like we do each week. We're going to read the chapter here in just a minute. And uh, as we read it, I encourage you to think on it, pray on it, think about what sticks out to you in this chapter, what's impressed on your heart. If you want to jot a note down or hold a thought in your mind, please do that. And maybe it's going to be one of the things I'm going to talk about, or maybe it's not. And you could take it back and into the week to your gospel group or wherever and share that thought and let the Spirit sort of press these things into our lives. Now remember, we just want to keep reinforcing this. We study God's Word because it has the power to shape and change and mold us. Amen? That's why we do it. So, that being said, let's go right into Ruth chapter 4 I got on the screen. You can follow along as well and I'll just read it for us. This is the word of the Lord. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down and and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Aren't you glad that wasn't your name? So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you'll not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and on to Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, 
and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this is the word of the Lord. What a great story. What a great story. What a great accounting of something that happened in history. And so as I prayed through this and thought about it, I got a couple of thoughts here I wanted to share with you today from this passage. Now, as you read it, you may have come up with other things that the Lord has impressed on you. And in fact, even as I'm reading it, I'm going, oh, there's that thing, and there's that thing, and that. There's all kinds of good thoughts here. But here's just two I'll share with you this morning. The first one is this. A man who settles matters does so with humility and authority, kindness and courage. And of course, the man we're talking about in this story is Boaz. And you say, okay, settles matters. What do I mean by settles matters? Well, that probably could be fairly broad. I think we all would understand what an unsettled matter would be, right? That idea of something is going on in my life, something is happening in my world, and it's hanging over my head. You ever feel that way? (laughs) I feel that way all the time. Right? I keep a to-do list, and when I don't want something hanging over my head, I put a star next to it, and it's my reminder of this is urgent, and let's get it out of the way. Right? You ever have that sense, something goes on in your life, and, and, and you're working through something, and you get to the outcome, and you go, well, maybe that's not the outcome I wanted, but at least it's over. <laughs> right? That sense of a, of a matter, of something hanging over your head, there is no peace. There's no peace. So what happens? What's the result of a matter being settled? The result is peace. The result is peace. So we're talking about a man who brings peace with matters. So let's look back. We've got to go back actually to the last verse of chapter 3. Naomi's talking to Ruth and she says, Wait. Wait until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Okay, and so you look at this, you might say, why are you talking about men here? Why a man? Why not a woman? Can't this apply to both men and women? And the answer, of course, is yes, it can for sure. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates men and women. It says, male and female, he created them. He's made us both. God made both. These principles apply to both men and women. Matters need to be settled in all sorts of arenas for all of us, wherever we're at in the station of our life. So at some point, these qualities apply to all of us. But let me just speak to men for a minute here directly. Because I think for some reason, there's a challenge for us as men I think God's given us this story as a reminder, as an encouragement that men, I think God wants us to really imitate Boaz. He really wants us to aim to settle matters. Why? Well, why us? Why that? Why are you focusing on men? Well, God made men and women different. 
duh. <laughs> duh. I go, okay, why? Why did God make them different? Well, he did it because there's, he has in himself, in his infinite God being, he has different qualities and characteristics. And as people, he has made us to express those qualities and characteristics, those aspects of his nature in different ways. And so he does that in women, and he does that in men. And right now we're going, uh-oh, Greg, the culture is really angry at you. <laughs> I don't know, maybe some of you are really angry at me for saying that. And I go, okay, that's fine. I can understand how there is this sense in the culture that says there is no difference between men and women. And that maleness and femaleness is just whatever you make of it for yourself. I understand that's the case. But I disagree with it. And I disagree with it for three reasons. Number one, my eyes tell me otherwise. Number two, the Bible tells me otherwise. And number three, reason and logic lead me to conclude otherwise. So I go, okay, so we're different, and that's okay. It's okay because each one, one is not greater than the other. They're both expressions of who God is and what God has made. With all of that in mind, we can see that in the Bible. We'll look specifically here at the marriage covenant, and people get really uptight about this. I can understand Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 22 and 25, and one of them it says, Husbands, love your wives. And the other one it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. And I know there's so much hand-wringing over submission, and what does that mean, and how does that work, and isn't that giving up? And I understand, but we understand that in anything there has to be leadership, and there has to be followership. In any sort of arrangement, any sort of relationship, any sort of group, any sort of movement, everything requires those things. And one can only be a follower if one submits to a leader. And as Christians, all of us, we have to be good followers of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And so I'm confident that regardless of how we sort of feel about this issue, we understand generally that the idea, the concept of submission to a leader, we know that submission to a, to a leader who is kind yet courageous, who exercises authority with humility, is much easier, isn't it, than submission to a weak-kneed, indecisive, passive leader. And so, men, I'm talking to you specifically because I think we can have a tendency as men to be those things we need, indecisive and passive. And we go back to that verse in Ephesians. God's call to you, yes, it's for husbands, it's men, generally speaking, is to love. Our call is to love. And isn't settling a matter a way of expressing love? I think it is. I think it is. So let's look at these four qualities as they apply really to all of us. But for men specifically, I encourage you to think about how can I walk this out in my life specifically. So let's look at those four things. The first one is humility, and I'm so loving that I have this verse. You've already heard this verse this morning. Dave and I did not coordinate that. And what's even more amazing, I go, I think the Lord had this probably for me. Maybe he's got it for you too, but he's got it for me because when I was part of this homeschool thing this week, the devotion every morning was on this verse, this set of verses. And I didn't put this in here because it was there. I put it in here because it was the thing I needed. So this, is, this also is the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no greater example of humility than Jesus Christ. Amen. As God, as God. Remember, Jesus is God. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us he was there at the beginning. So who created the universe? Jesus. God. And then Jesus went and lived a perfect life. So he's God. He made the universe. He lives the perfect human life. There was never, ever, ever anybody else who didn't deserve to die for their sin. Who didn't deserve the penalty of death. Jesus was the only one and yet in humility he went to the cross. He went to the cross. Jesus is the example for us of humility. I think Boaz is also. Boaz said, turn aside, friend. He's talking to the Redeemer. Turn aside and sit down. Turn aside and sit down. Do you see that? He approached this other man as a friend. He approached him as a friend. He didn't make demands. He didn't state his case. He didn't lead with his opinion. Man, so many of us lead with our opinions today, don't we? He said, hey, come, sit down with me, friend. This appeal, it takes humility to make this kind of appeal, doesn't it? And so the first step in the process of settling a matter for Boaz, it was to start with humility. And for us, we also should imitate him by starting our settling of matters in humility. Second aspect there is authority. Authority. Well, nobody else had any more, nobody else has any more authority in the universe than Jesus, right? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. And just like with humility, Jesus is the greatest example available to us of authority. As creator, as God, only he, he's the only one who could step into the universe and save us from the penalty of our sins. He is the only one. He's the only one. And yet having that authority, I think he could have ignored us and said, ah, I'm not going to take that authority. I'll leave it to you. You can die in your sins. But instead, Jesus acted with clarity and decisiveness. Praise be to God that he did. And so he gives us an example of exercising authority, and I think Boaz does also. This passage there, Ruth 4, If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me, then I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it. I come after you. Boaz had some authority. He was a kinsman. He had connection to this. He had authority to act in this situation. And sometimes when I've read this, I've wondered, why did this other kinsman, if this other kinsman was sort of in front of the line, in front of him in this situation, where was that guy? Where was he in all of this? It was like he had some authority and he just gave it up. But here was Boaz, and Boaz said, I have the authority. I have this position. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not just going to think, well, that other guy's going to deal with it. Someone else is going to deal with it. We'll just kind of let it. No, he stacked it with the authority that he had in that situation and brought his authority to bear to settle the matter. When facing matters, we also, in faith, should exercise the authority God's given us and not be passive. The third quality there is kindness. Again, there's nobody more kind than Jesus. You could find example after example after example in the New Testament and the Gospels of Jesus and how he exerted kindness. I thought of this one in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Follows this rich young ruler, comes to Jesus and says, What do I need to do, Jesus, to get to heaven? And Jesus says, Well, how about obey some commandments? And he's like, Well, I've obeyed all of those. And then it says, Jesus looking at him loved him. Jesus looking at him loved him. 
guy, that rich young ruler, he was, you know, he was kind of antagonistic. He was definitely proud. He's one of those people that I, he probably came up to you, any of us, we'd be just like, ugh. Ah. But Jesus loved him. Jesus showed kindness. And he showed kindness by expressing his love in words of truth. In words of truth. Jesus modeled for us just an unflinching kindness. He didn't recoil from this antagonistic, proud guy. He reached out and he loved him. He loved him. He modeled that in his interactions with people. Again, we can see that throughout the Gospels. Boaz, likewise, and he's interacting with this redeemer. The redeemer says, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. You take it. Take my right for redemption. I can't do it. You take it. I just appreciate so much how Boaz was straightforward. He could have approached a situation and been like, oh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I, I need to trick this guy. I need to be cunning. I need to get after him. I need to, I need to make this work out my way. No, he was just like, I'm going to be kind to this guy. I'm going to be kind to the other redeemer. And we see that kindness echoed as, he, as Boaz deals with Ruth. And he gives her gifts and he's kind. He says, oh, here, take this to your mother-in-law. He's kind to Naomi as well. He demonstrates this kindness. And so we have to remember when we're dealing with matters that need to be settled, they almost always involve other people. They almost always involve others. And we should follow the example of Jesus and follow the example of Boaz and lead those things with kindness. The fourth quality there is courage. Courage. Again, there's nobody more courageous in the Bible than Jesus Christ. In the garden, Jesus was praying. And he said this, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew exactly what was coming to him. He's God. He knew it. He knew what was coming. He knew he was going to be betrayed by his friends. He knew he was going to endure horrific torture and ridicule and mocking publicly. And then he was going to be brutally executed. He knew it was coming. It took courage. It took courage. We all love the quality of courage. It's pretty much the basis of almost every movie. Most of the books we read. We get excited about news stories. I think everybody loves superheroes because they're courageous. So courage is this quality that's at the heart of everything that we love, but it's an incredibly difficult quality to carry out, isn't it? But Jesus didn't have that quality. In the face of such a difficult situation, he exhibited the most courage I think anyone could have. Boaz also had courage. He said to the Redeemer, If you will redeem it, redeem it. It took courage. Boaz knew what he wanted, but he had to sort of say, okay, I'm going to charge into this with courage. i got to charge into it with courage. He had to do it publicly. He gathers the elders and has them sit down and in front of all the people. He's like, all right, I'm going to set this out here. It takes courage to stand up and say that. It took courage for him to say, I have the rights, I have the desires, I'm going to surrender it and set it on the table and we'll see what happens. It took courage. It would have been so easy for him, but he did not just go passive on it and say, well, we'll just sort of figure out what happened. He, he exhibited courage because settling matters takes courage. And we should imitate Boaz and we should imitate Jesus as best we can and be courageous. Okay, so what's our application from this? There's those four qualities again. Well, I think each one of us, every single one of you, might face a really difficult matter soon. Or maybe some of you are sitting here today and you're going... Yeah, I'm facing one right now. I've got a really difficult matter. 
Well, I would ask you this. Are you pursuing all of these qualities? Are you pursuing these? Are you looking to the example of Christ and the example, the picture that Boaz is? Humility, authority, kindness, courage. Are you doing that? That's convicting to me. I hope you join me as we face these things and say, Lord, please help me. Help me in these things. Help me to be humble. Help me to exert authority. Help me to be kind to others. Help me to be courageous. So that was the first thought I wanted to share this morning from Ruth chapter 4, the second one. And this is really kind of a wrap-up to the whole book. Is that life rarely goes according to our plans or expectations, but the Lord will eventually bring us to glory. When we look at this story and we look at across the whole four chapters, we can speculate a little bit. We're not told specifically, well, Naomi was hoping this and Ruth was hoping this. And, but we can kind of speculate based on what's going on there in the story. And I think get a pretty good picture, right? That Naomi had this vision, <clears throat> and I'm sure it would probably be common to most of us, she had this vision that she would probably be outlived by her husband, right? I'm guessing she had this vision of, I'm going to have, I've got two sons, this is great, they got married, I'm going to have a bunch of grandchildren, this is going to be really exciting for me, maybe at some point, I know we're living here in Moab, but we're going to return, we'll go back, things will get better, we'll go back to Bethlehem, we'll go back to Israel, we'll go back to our people, and we'll come back, and we'll be like singing, and waving our arms, and banging cymbals, and being like, look at all the things God has done that are great, these blessings in my life. It didn't happen that way, though. And what about Ruth? Well, we don't know. Again, it doesn't say specifically, but I'm pretty sure Ruth, like any of us, would have had this desire to be, okay, be provided for by my husband. She marries this guy, and he's a great guy, and he's going to provide for me. And not only is he going to provide for me, we're going to have children. And we're going to watch them grow, and we're going to grow up, and we're going to grow old in the care and the comfort of this loving, extended family. It didn't happen that way for her either, did it? It didn't work out for either of these two. Instead, think about Naomi. Naomi experienced the premature loss of her husband. Well, there went that plan shattered. Then she experienced, as if that wasn't enough for her husband to pass away, she had to experience the death of not one, but both of her sons. Well, that kind of destroyed that plan. She had no grandchildren. They passed away and she had no grandchildren. Here she had hoped for all these grandchildren. She had no grandchildren of her own. And then she had to go back to Israel. Well, it wasn't a dancing in the street. (laughs) Look at what God has done. She came back and she said, I am bitter. I am filled with sorrow because of what has happened. She was destitute. She had no protection. And there she was. And then there was Ruth. Did you catch that? Sometimes we miss that. Ruth was married for 10 years to her first husband before he died. They were unable to have children. They had no children. 10 years. And then her husband dies. So it wasn't enough. Her husband dies. And then she goes, okay, I'm going to make this difficult choice. And I'm going to go live as a stranger in a strange land in Israel. But I'm going to go there and I'm going to be destitute. I'm going to be without protection. It didn't work out the way they hoped, did it? At least I think we can, we can speculate that that's the case. And we understand for ourselves that life brings uncertainty. Life brings uncertainty. We make plans, we have expectations, and it rarely goes that way, does it? It rarely goes that way. And faith in God 
is not a magic pill to save us from tragedy. Did you catch that? Faith in God is not a magic pill to save us from this tragedy. Did you catch that? Suffering will be a part of our life experience. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish it wasn't that way. But we can look back. Remember the verse I just had from Philippians? Jesus did what? He humbled himself even to death on the cross. Even to death on the cross. Jesus told us to expect suffering in Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life and lose it, We'll lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Take up his cross doesn't just mean, well, pick up the heavy timbers and carry it around. No, it was an instrument of death and suffering and humiliation. Jesus told us to expect this. But if it was up to us, right, we wouldn't expect that. We wouldn't plan for that. I don't know about you, that's not my hope, my plan, my expectation for life. I want ease. I want comfort. That's what I want. But it's not up to me. It's not up to us. And life, especially life following Christ, is not going to go according to that plan. Now our culture has two dangerous counterfeits, I think, when it comes to dealing with and experiencing suffering. And I'm going to show them here Have these pictures. The first one, I call it the Netflix syndrome. I don't know about you. I, I love streaming video services. Uh, I like that idea of, oh man, I want to watch a movie. I can watch this. Or I want to watch Jeopardy. I can watch Jeopardy. Or I want to watch something else. I can watch something else. Or I can, oh, and I could start it. Recently, my wife was gone on vacation. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, watch something. And I started watching a movie. And I was like, nah, I don't really like this. So I just stopped and started watching something else. I didn't like it. I was suffering watching that movie, so I turned and watched something else, right? That's what we do. We like to have unlimited options. We like to have things that cater to our preferences. If I don't like something, I just want to switch to something that's better, and this works great for entertainment, and it works terrible in life. It works terrible in life because suffering, the Bible tells us suffering comes from sin, and death comes from sin and brokenness that comes from all of that is going to follow us wherever we go, even if we try to change the channel and change our circumstances and change our life and change the way we are and the way, place we're living and the people we're hanging out with. It doesn't work. It doesn't save us from suffering because we're promised suffering. The second counterfeit I think that the culture has is the Santa Claus God syndrome. That somehow I look at God and he's like this jolly old guy. And he's just, hey Santa, give me that. And he'll just give it. That somehow my faith can control God. And I can just get God to give me whatever I want. Including comfort and ease and no loss. And where that sort of leads is that when I go, oh when things go bad it's like I just don't have enough faith. I need to have more faith. If I just have more faith, then God's just going to give me the things that I want. It's like Santa's not like reading my letters right. I need to like write them a little bit more clearly or something. And this sounds nice. And unfortunately, it leads many, many people astray. It is impossible to reconcile Santa Claus God with the scripture. 
It's impossible to reconcile it with the words of Jesus, with the words of the apostles and the Old Testament because we're told we're going to suffer. It doesn't work. So we have those counterfeits and you go, oh man, Greg, this is super depressing. Why do we have to suffer? And it is super depressing if the Bible is not true. If the Bible is not true, it is depressing because there's no hope in the suffering. It's just suffering and then you die. And there's no glory from it. There's no expectation of any joy coming into your life from suffering. There's no expectation of any good rolling into your life when things don't go according to your plan. If the Bible's not true. But if the Bible is true, then we have hope in suffering. And I encourage you, just do a web search. Verses on hope in suffering. Just so you could say, okay, well what are all the verses? And there's dozens and dozens of verses in the Bible that tell us to have hope in suffering. I love this one. This is just one. I'm not going to go through dozens of them. Just the one today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while... And really, if we live here 70, 80, 90 years and you suffer the whole time, that's really a little while in in the light of eternity, isn't it? He says, The God of all grace, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you see that? God will bring us to glory. We will suffer and God will bring us to glory. I love those words. Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. What a promise. Amen. Amen. So I think the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz is given to us in part as a picture of God bringing good amidst the suffering of our life, amidst the plans and the expectations not working out the way we hoped they would. In the end, what do we see? Naomi's sitting in the circle of women and they're praising God for his blessings in her life. There is protection, there is love, there is community, not in the way she'd planned it, but in God's way. And there's Naomi. She gains a husband. She gains protection. She gains care. Did you catch it? She has a child. Ten years married, no child. She gets married and she has a child, a son. God comes through and brings glory. And not only that, we see the last verses there. He becomes the the great-grandfather of the king. The king of Israel. And the many, 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 many great-grandfather of who? Jesus the Messiah. God brought glory into this situation in the midst of suffering. And so as I close, I want us to just think about our own lives and what, how can we ap- apply this for ourselves? And I think the question to ask is, will I trust God? Will I trust God when the things aren't going according to my plan and my expectation? Because if you hadn't noticed, life is not going to go according to your plans and your expectations. It's not going to go that way. But will you trust God? Will you trust Him? And will you praise Him for the good that you know maybe He's bringing it about in the midst of the trial? Maybe He's going to bring it about after the trial? Maybe the glory that He's going to bring you is just into eternity with Him. Whatever it is, will you praise Him? 
That's the only place, the only way we're going to have hope and joy in this life. Let's pray and we'll close. Yeah, thank you God for your word. Thank you for the truth that is in it. I thank you that it provides more than just verbal instructions, but it provides pictures of you at work in the lives of real people. God, as we think about suffering and we think about hardship and trials and even just, oh, dashed hopes. God, you give us a picture right here that you are in it and that you are going to bring about glory and good for us and for those around us. Thank you, God, for this picture, God. And I thank you for sending Jesus to walk it out in a human form where it's not just an abstract theoretical thing, but it was really done and really accomplished and really modeled for us. Humility and authority and kindness and courage and so many other things. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending him to live it out. God, help us, each one of us, where we're at by the power of your spirit, with the instruction of the word, in the community of the saints that you've drawn us into, help us to walk these things out together. God, I praise you that you bring good in my life by your power in the midst of suffering. Help us as we go out from here this week. Help us to love you just a little bit more than we did last week. In Jesus' name, amen.